theme for us uh, North Americans, for uh, Americans, this idea of happiness. It uh, flies uh, through history, and we see it popping up in all kinds of ways. Uh, how many of you remember Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy from 1988, right? Don't worry, just be happy. Or uh, more recent developments, uh, and I'm not kidding you, this is the real thing. It's uh, an academic institute called Happiness Research Institute. It's in Finland. It's a very serious place where they study Happiness and quotients for happiness. Uh, measuring well-being and the pursuit of a meaningful life. Uh, they look for all kinds of cognitive dimensions, emotion, and uh, the pursuit of what we might call the, Aristotelian, the Aristotle's good life. Uh, we human beings are looking for happiness in all kinds of ways. It pops up in all kinds of places like... Uh, the website Lifehack, which has all the answers to all of your immediate problems. If you go looking there, you're going to find the ten ways for you to have a happy or meaningful life. And there they are. You've been wondering. Here they are. We've got them all nailed down. Ten simple things, right? Know uh, what's important. Pursue your passion. Discover life's purpose. Be self-aware. Focus, focus, focus. People, more than things, live with compassion. Find a, a way to give back simplify your life, and so much more. You've got to simplify your goals, and there you have it. That's the way to have a happy life. Well, the problem that I see with all of that, and I hope I don't have to make this case too clear tonight for all of us, is that there's somehow or another something missing in all of this pursuit of happiness. And that something that is missing is the thing that keeps us from finding happiness. I think. That is to say that in all of our pursuits of happiness, we seem to sort of shortchange ourselves with the possibility that God might have something to do with it all. That perhaps our desire to find a meaningful life might find a better place to stand if we weren't so doggone autonomous and pursue our own self-interests. I was having a conversation with a college student not uh, three or four weeks ago. And uh, the big word for her was autonomy. I thought, well, good, that ACU education is paying off. Uh, autonomy. I said, what do you mean autonomy? Well, I get to decide what I get to do, and I get to do whatever I want to do as long as I don't hurt somebody else. And I said, now tell me a little more. Uh, this was a serious conversation. I'm making it kind of light. But in the context of the conversation, she had just told me about the divorce in her family. I said, so your, so your dad did the autonomous thing, huh? How did that work out for you when you were 14 years old? Well, that was a sober moment, and uh, it, was, it came off a little easier than I just said it right now. I hope you understand I do have some pastoral skills. <laughs> <laughs> but do you kind of get the point? That autonomy, that I get to decide, and I'm going to figure this out all by myself, has some weaknesses to that theory. But I'm telling you, in the world we live in, where there are atheists, as Ricky said earlier, we live in a world where everything's sort of blurred. And one of the things that's blurring in our culture is the role and place of how we connect our life to God life. And that's why this text is so important for us as believers tonight. 
because of the way in which it draws together the life that we long to have, a meaningful life, a life of fruitfulness, is the language that we're going to hear tonight, actually starts and is rooted completely and totally in nothing less than God life. Could I invite you to hear this text from uh, John chapter 15? Beginning in verse 1. Listen closely to the Word of God. Jesus speaks and says these words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. And He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that bears fruit He prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by my word that I've spoken to you. So remain in me and I will remain in you. And just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides by the, in the vine, neither can you uh, uh, unless you abide or remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. For as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love and abide in the Father's commandments. And I have said these things to you so that your joy might be complete. And that, uh, excuse me, that my joy may be complete in you and that your joy may be complete. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. May God bless the reading of his word. This narrative, this story that Jesus tells, uh, is deeply rooted in the psyche and the world in which he uh, uh, embodied it, there's nothing more Mediterranean than a vineyard. And if you are anywhere in the Mediterranean basin, you're going to see vineyards everywhere. And that's the case for Israel. Uh, they're everywhere in Israel and Judah during the time of Jesus and even today. In fact, I've got a couple of pictures of coins that I want to show you that come from the time of Jesus and slightly before the time of Jesus. Can you see the, 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 the grapevine there? And then the second one will show a, a kind of a cluster of grapes in the shape, kind of a, in a heart shape. This one's just before the time of Jesus, during the Bar Kokhba rebellion. I share these with you to say sometimes what you find on coins and dollar bills, you know, oh, George Washington reached for his sunglasses. He hadn't been out in a while. 
you know, when you see eagles and stuff, it's kind of like, oh, that's important, right? Well, vineyards and vines were important to ancient Israel. That's why we'd read, for example, in Psalm chapter 80, the story about how God tenderly plants a vine and builds a, a wall around it and takes care of it, and then things happen. And this idea of a vineyard and vines and grapes is all very much a part of the ethos of, what it, uh, of the world in which Jesus inhabits. And so Jesus does something here that Jewish teachers do. That he does sort of a, what's called a mashal. It's a, it's a Jewish way of teaching by taking something specific, an idea, a, a vine, branches, grapes, and he begins to weave it and work with it in sort of a narrative way. And before long, you're hearing wisdom. You're hearing a teaching. And the teaching that we're being given here tonight has, is full of all kinds of things, of which we'll only chase a few of the, this evening. But there, there's stuff here about remaining in Jesus and remaining in, uh, in God, about being fruitful, about being a disciple, about being in the presence of God's love. There's these words of encouragement to love one another to work with one another, to lay down one's life for another, and on and on it goes. And in all of this, the context of this is the community in which uh, John is writing in that is embodied in the practices of love. One scholar, Gail O'Day, will make this quote about this. She'll say that the mark of a faithful community is how it loves, not who are its members. It's not about seeing who's uh, got the most credentials before or after their name. It's no, it's the practice of love with one another. And in that context, as John tells this story about Jesus, we're being introduced to some things that might help us as we think about what does it mean for us to live a meaningful or happy life. Several threads are flowing through this text. I'd like to lift a few of them up and, and think about them tonight. For example, this idea of remaining with Jesus or remaining in, uh, in the vine. Uh, or the old word for this is abide. And I apologize, I switched back and forth as I read the text there a while ago. I, I, my, I've got an old-fashioned translation that says abide. Uh, abide sort of an old word. We don't use it much anymore. In fact, I got to looking around in the Oxford English Dictionary. There are 16 uses of the word abide, and about eight of them are no longer used. They're obsolete. We just don't use that word much anymore. We don't talk about it very much anymore. Motel signs don't stay, abide here, right? Or when have you heard a baseball announcer say, well, that sums up the enemy inning, one hit, one walk, and two abiding on base. We, we don't hear that kind of language anymore. And yet there's something here that's at work with this idea of abiding or remaining or staying that's so profound and so important to remain. Eugene Peterson in his translation of this work or translate this word in this way, he says, instead of remaining or abiding, you might say, live in me, make your home in me just as I make my home in you. What does it mean to abide, to dwell to draw in the very same air as Jesus draws, to, to use and, and uh, eat the same food that Jesus eats, to be nourished by the very same things, 
to, to dwell, to linger, to be present with. The idea of abiding. The word, we struggle with the word a little bit because we don't abide very well in anything today. Uh, just this morning in the New York Times, an essay came out called Finding It Hard to Focus. Maybe it's not your fault. Well, I don't know if it's your fault or not, but the essay is pointing out how hard it is for us to stay focused. You know, now there are more and more apps for your smartphone to help you not get to the apps that you want to use because we're finding ourselves drawn to all kinds of stuff. There's a college professor on the East Coast at Tufts who's doing research on the the ways in which uh, 18 to 22-year-olds are spending so much time on various apps uh, that uh, their ability to have, uh, to have attention in a classroom is diminishing at great and rapid rates. And it's not just 18 to 22-year-olds, folks. It's all of us. Anyone that's got a cell phone in their pocket needs to hear stuff like, uh, like this. I uh, have to get to the quote here. Uh, How many times do you touch your phone in a given day? Well, interestingly, uh, Nokia did a study uh, in 2013, 150 times people touch their phones in a given day. Uh, Other studies show that it's even higher than that. Um, uh, Another research phone uh, firm in 2016 says that we touch our phones on average, on average, 2,600 times in a day. How many times have you touched it since I started speaking? Okay. Um, Apple confirms that we unlock our iPhones 80 times in a day. Are you getting the idea how hard it is for us to abide? Because we're so easily, easily distracted by all sorts of things. I'm just picking on technology a little, technology a little bit tonight. I'm suggesting that perhaps what we might hear in this text is a call for us to disengage a bit from the many things, the clamoring things, the electronic things. Maybe we ought to drop these in a basket by the back door when we walk in at night. Maybe it would be nice to have a full hour with your family and not be looking at a screen of any sort. Sherry... Turkle, who's a researcher at MIT in this essay, says the real struggle for children now is not sibling rivalry. The biggest struggle for children today is that they have to compete not against their siblings, but against mom and dad's iPhones. That made me grieve this morning with my morning coffee. And I don't think that we're any more immune from that than any other person walking down a street in North America today. The idea to abide... Whoa, to, to dwell, to linger, to pay attention to the presence of God in our lives. That perhaps what we need is not another app on our phone, but perhaps what we need is just to spend a little more time. And if, yeah, see, even our Bibles are on our phones, which, that's great, that's great. But just be looking at the Bible. Not another round of Instagram for 30 minutes. To spend time with the Lord, to be in His presence, to be with one another, with each other, in the presence of God, 
is the sort of thing that I hear Jesus talking about in this text. As he tells the stories, he unravels this metaphor of stories about vines and vineyards and dwelling and remaining and being uh, embodied and close to and intimate with the presence of God. That that kind of paying attention to each other and to God is what we dearly need if we hope to have life that's meaningful, that's enriching, that's fruitful, as he's going to argue in this text. To be fruitful. And so we long, I think we long for that, we desire it. And so I'm inviting us to be people who spend time with the Lord and to spend time with each other with the Lord and practice this business of abiding and dwelling. Now, there's more in here. There's more in this, that this, this narrative that Jesus is unfolding that speaks to and addresses some of the stuff that we deal with, uh, I think, in our ordinary and our, our everyday lives. Uh, it's, it's recognizing that if we're going to dwell with the Lord and abide with Him, then Jesus is telling us some hard, other hard news here. It's not the sort of thing that we want to hear. It's not the sort of supermarket spirituality that uh, is so popular in North America that, you know, just, you know, do these ten things and you'll find meaning in life. No, there's a word here that's hard, and, but I've, I've got to tell you what it's, we've got to remind ourselves of it. Jesus says, look, God is a vine dresser, and just like any good vine dresser, he's going to do some cutting. He's going to do some pruning. <laughs> Uh, we talked about my wife Vicky a moment ago. Vicky and I have very different philosophies about what it means to prune rose bushes. And we've got about 60 at our house now. So there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, she gets pretty nervous when I get the pruning shears in my hands. Because I've read up on this. I've read John 15. So she, so has she. I've got to be careful she's not here to defend herself. Uh, but at the end of the day... You know what? There is more of the rose bush in the wheelbarrow than there is still on the rose bush. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you know about roses, or you know about grapevines, right? Same thing with grapevines, right? You've got to do some serious pruning if you want a good crop the next year. It, there's some cutting going on. And you cut off those things that are no longer productive, the old canes from last year, if you're a rose grower. I think it's the same thing with vineyards. And then you go around and do a second kind of cutting where you go and look, well, that's nice that that's popping up there, but if that continues to grow, it's going to suck away life from this other larger cane that I want to have for the flower. So I've got to do that second round of pruning, right? You do the winter pruning, and then in spring, as it starts to leaf out, you do another round of pruning. Two rounds of pruning. It's hard work, and it's ruthless, and it's also tender. I, there's nothing more rewarding than getting down close to the earth. And I have to talk about rose bushes because I don't know about vineyards. But rose bush, to be down in the, near the earth with a pair of loping shears, looking closely at the root and the root ball and the graft, and then those canes, and you can tell the old canes they've already spent, and it's a cut. And then you're looking to see where the healthiest ones are, there's never a moment when I'm more in love 
with my rose bushes than when I'm in the winter when I'm doing that pruning work. I think about that when I hear this story. About how God actually lovingly goes to work on those who remain in Him. Who He longs to, to work and shape them in such a way that they might be fruitful. That flowers or, in the, or vines and grapes grow. That fruitfulness is, it comes. And yet, we need to hear, I think, folks, that when we start to ask about what does it mean to live a meaningful life or to be fruitful in life, that there are some things that are just going to have to go. <laughs> and that God's going to prune some things. And there are some things that we may choose ourselves to do some pruning on if we're listening to the voice of the One whom we dwell within. That we're going to make choices about this good thing and this good thing and this good thing, but then there's this best thing. And other things have just need to go and so that the best thing might flourish. Oh, I know what it's like to have a hundred good things to do. But what would it be like if I could say no to some things so that the one or two good things could really flourish in my life? So that those kids or those grandkids might flourish. Right? Or that I might be able to give myself a little more fully to this ministry in the church if I would say no to some other things. And the list could go on and on. There's this business of pruning then. This, this business that if, if we're going to be faithful to God, we know that God's going to be cutting. And sometimes when the cut comes, we don't know whether we're being cut off or just being cut on. It is a hard thing being human and living through and dealing with those moments when we find ourselves being disciplined or cut or pruned or something hard happens in our life and we don't know quite what's going on on that. It's a lot of up and down. But the key to it all is this business about faithfulness, of abiding, and knowing that God works through that to do remarkable things. I love this quote from N.T. Wright that speaks about all of this in, in wonderful ways. He writes this. He says, The genuine spirituality to which this, this passage invites us is not one of unfettered personal de development, fulfilling all the potential that we might discover within ourselves, no, it's, it is one in which as we follow Jesus and come to know Him personally for ourselves, we find Him calling us to submit to the pruning knife, to cut out some things from our lives which are good in themselves and which would in principle have had the potential to develop into fruit-bearing branches in, in order that other things might flourish. Pruning is always painful. It's a kind of bereavement. I think that's an interesting point of view. But the vine dresser is never closer to the vine, never more intimately concerned with it than when yielding the pruning knife. So I want to say these words as we think about a remaining and abiding. We also talk about pruning and the, and the pain that comes with that. that there's, that's the, another dimension of what it means to live and dwell and find, our, find life that might give life and sustenance to our own actions and living. And I have to say one more word about this because... Sometimes hard, when hard things happen in our life, uh, we can often find ourselves falling in perhaps a trap to think, oh, is that God cutting on me? And I want to be careful when, we get to, when bad things happen and start assigning who's doing what in all of that. And I appreciate the work of the writer Elaine Emmeth who says, 
some things about that. She has this image that uh, God is not the one who brings hardship or injustice into our lives or trauma or abuse. No, she says we need to think about it in a different way. She says, let's think of God who as a gardener grieves whenever a horrid storm comes rushing through the vineyard and tears up stuff. Right? You ever had a hailstorm hit a, rose, a set of rose bushes? It's not nice. And so what does the gardener do? The gardener goes to repair. And pruning is a part of that repair work, is it not? When you've got damaged crops, you've got a tree, an apple tree where branches are broken, you've got to go prune if you want the thing to stay healthy. That's the work of the gardener. The gardener is not the one who blows in the horrid hailstorm. That's not the work of God. But God, as the tender gardener, comes to do the repair work to nurture us and restore us to health and vitality again. Not without maybe a few scars, like the peach tree in my backyard that's been through a few, a few hailstorms, right? Not without scars, but alive and vibrant uh, and fun that I get to feed all of the birds in my neighborhood the peaches before I get to them every year. Ah, frustrating, I tell you what. No, God is the faithful gardener caring for us, nurturing us to restore and renew and bring health. And to what end? That's another theme flowing through this that we've been hinting at. It's the theme of fruitfulness. To bear fruit. To be able to bring new life and new possibilities out of our life. This idea of fruitfulness in this abiding. And what does Jesus mean by that? Well, you know, I think it's sort of vague. And I think, clever as Jesus is, and as John is as he records this, he leaves it sort of ambiguous about fruitfulness. Are we talking about uh, bringing new people to Jesus? Well, that would be fruitfulness, wouldn't it? Does it mean having a life that's incredibly fruitful and life-giving to others? Yes, that would be fruitfulness. Would it mean having a life of such character that you see the fruits of the Spirit emerging from uh, someone, from myself? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness. Remember the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? Is that fruitfulness? I think it is. You see, the invitation is for us to remain in Jesus, to abide in Him, to have a life anchored in the life of God and allow for God's transforming power that belongs to Him, not to us, to renew and empower and enliven and cause us to be fruitful in the living of our lives. That's the invitation. That's the possibility. And that's the promise that's being offered to us in all of this. To live and to dwell and to remain in the presence of God and allow uh, God's transforming work to shape and change and nurture us in healthy and strong ways. And you never know how that gets played out in all kinds of ways. And how it ripples through time and space in ways that we fully don't always know or understand. Um, and so let me close with just a personal story about this. I was in Austin uh, five or six days ago, and uh, you know, Abilene, I don't get out much. We don't have you know a lot of fancy places, but in Austin now, there's fancy places in Austin, and I think there are fancy places here. 
In fact, I went to one here tonight, had dinner. In fact, I'm wearing some of it over here. <laughs> it was good. Well, I ended up with uh, some folks that are uh, from ACU. We were all at a place called the Shake Shack. I think there's actually one here in San Antonio, right? How many have been to a Shake Shack? I mean, whoa, really good. And uh, so I ordered a burger and fries and, no, a chocolate shake. All right, chocolate shake, right? Really exciting. In fact, I'm smiling from ear to ear, and I'm, oh, this is good, this is good. And finally, one of my buddies said, why are you so excited about this? I said, it's good. He said, well, yeah, it is good, but you're just kind of going on. And then I had to stop and think, and suddenly a wave of memory came over me. When I was an eighth grader, junior high, or middle school, excuse me, middle school, uh, every Thursday, my dad would swing by the Big Oak Drive-In in Chandler, Oklahoma, where I grew up, and he would pick up two hamburgers, two orders of french fries, and two chocolate, actually malts, if I get the story straight. And he'd swing by the front of the junior high school, and I would, out I would come, and he'd pick me up, and we'd go down to the city park and sit there and have Thursday lunch together. We abided together that whole year. It was an abiding thing, right? What did we talk about? I don't remember hardly anything we talked about. We talked about the weather. We talked about sports. We talked about faith. We talked about my schoolwork. We talked about our family. I we talked about everything. And frankly, I've got to tell you today that I can't hardly have a hamburger and fries and a chocolate shake without remembering my dad, who's been gone about 10 years now. There's a certain fruitfulness about that because I carry embodied within me the gifts of my father, who was not a perfect man, but he was a man who understood what it meant to invest in someone else. There's a certain fruitfulness about that. And so I have a son. And you know what one of his favorite meals is? Yeah, you can guess it. Uh, or food more broadly. He sent me a text the other day from Sykeston, Missouri, of Lambert's home of the throwed rolls. Everybody been there? Yeah, he said, Dad, I thought you'd like this. Yeah, I know what he's, he's communicating to me. There's a certain fruitfulness of ab abiding that's a part of that. Are you following me? I'm inviting us this, this evening in the name of Jesus to hear the words of Jesus who he's, when he says, hey, I'm the vine, the source of life. You are branches. Abide, remain, stay in me. Let God the Father do His work on us. Let Him do the pruning. Stay with it. Hang in there. Because out of that kind of indwelling and the presence of God comes fruitfulness. And that's better than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness any day of the week.